Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host Titus and today I am joined again by Joseph Bottom for a discussion of John McTiernan's The 13th Warrior, a catastrophe movie that nevertheless has a touch of greatness about it and we will work our critical powers to their utmost to try to salvage this film. It was a flop in 99, it had however quite a cast and a remarkable story and Michael Crichton high on the fame of Jurassic Park as the writer of the book the movie is based on. Nevertheless, it's not well loved and not at all understood, so we're going to try to rescue it. But first of all, Mr. Bottom, thank you for joining me again. It was serendipitous that we should both love and have somewhat similar thoughts on how to defend it. And so I'm glad you're joining me again. Please introduce yourself for our audience and let's get to our movie. Well, thanks for having me. I'm uh, in what I have been when we last talked, still the same person. I uh, write my books and I'm teaching a little bit on cyber ethics which is a topic that came to interest me over the last decade. And I've turned some of my critical attention to the problems that the computer revolution has given us over the last 40 years, because I think they're underappreciated. My line, Titus, is however much the computer revolution worries you, it's not enough. We have great dangers coming down the road. But, you know, you and I today are looking back looking back at a movie instead of looking forward. And I think we should. This is such a curious case study of a high-flying director, high-flying actors, high-flying writer, all of whom combined to create something that was roundly mocked at the time, or at least not mocked, dismissed, and was a box office flop, particularly because it was so expensive to make. The writer and the director were so high-flying that the studios gave them a ton of money, very little of which they got back from the box office. Yes, and in defense of the movie, it does show. It looks like an expensive movie should. It has a bit of the epic feel, and uh, I guess that's why they hired Omar Sharif for his cameo to get people thinking a little of Lawrence of Arabia. But indeed, it made no money to speak of, and of course, the press loves a hit, but maybe loves a flop even more, because all the anger, the resentments, all the criticism and the loathing can come out in vituperative prose, and they went to town on this movie, and I'm not sure it's ever recovered, although it may be developing into something of a cult hit, just like, of course, the director, who more or less had his career ended there, John McTiernan, is still famous. He made his debut in 87 in Hollywood with Predator, which became a pop culture defining movie and of course a big success. And in 88 he had Die Hard, which is still fairly impressive to people. And in 1990 The Hunt for October, another very good movie, a big success. In the 90s he didn't do so well anymore. And by the time this movie came out in 99, this man's career was over. It's a strange case of a man being so successful with so many hits one after another and very good movies with very good actors at that disappearing so fast. If you go on, well, part of it, Titus, of course, is that he ended up in jail. That was later. That's true. He's himself a screwed up person. It is a sign that, that, that catastrophe is stalking him in a way that those Vikings in this movie would have understood. The fates are out after him. And they do finally, you know, his curious life does finally catch up with him and collapses. He ends up going to jail 
he takes a plea bargain, pleads guilty to lying to FBI agents who are investigating him for illegal wiretapping of people he didn't like in Hollywood. I mean, it's just such an awful thing. He then goes to court and tries to get the plea bargain overturned, which he does, at which point they charge him with all the other things that they had dropped in favor of the plea bargain, he's found guilty. And instead of spending four months in jail, he's convicted and spends a year in jail. The world falls in on this man, like the Ettons crashing into the Mead Hall in the movie or in Beowulf. I think his career in certain ways is illustrative of the very virtues and worldview that this movie presented. Yeah, no doubt, McTiernan was the poet of manliness in America in various forms in the decade of his career in these nine or so movies credited to his particular genius. And indeed, there's more than a bit of tragedy and of deep disappointment we feel when we see The Great Fallen. The complaint about this movie was that the plot was thin. The critics were saying beautiful set scene after beautiful set scene with not enough plot to make us care. That becomes the received wisdom about this particular movie. In a certain way, of course, all of his movies were like that. Even Die Hard has a relatively thin plot, almost ruined by its attempt to develop a subplot involving the reporter and other things in the second half of the film, because it just wasn't enough plot to carry the film forward through its second hour. The Hunt for Red October. I have very little use for the author of that book as a writer. I think he has a prose that you wouldn't put in a laundry bag for fear it would soil the other laundry. But the <laughs> fact of the matter is he always overpiled his books, especially the early books like Hunt for Red October, which was his breakthrough success. I mean, it was a bestseller published by the Naval Institute Press, which was not a publisher known for having bestsellers. <laughs> Uh, so, you <laughs> know, when right. the author breaks through, he was overloading those books, and The Hunt for Red October turned into a good movie because the source material was very, very thick. The movie is actually thinner in terms of plot than the book was, so he had more to work with. But if you look at Predator, for instance, or his first movie, Nomads, which is nearly unwatchable, what's the complaint about Predator? There really isn't much of a plot. It's a setup. And the attempts to develop subplots all kind of just wash away so that we can get, you know, this one scene of Arnold Schwarzenegger rising from the mud. So McTiernan's problem was always kind of a thinness. And he took this Michael Crichton book and stripped out the science subplot. The book was originally called Eaters of the Dead. It was briefly re-released after the movie as The Thirteenth Warrior. Then after the failure of the movie, it was republished again because Michael Crichton's books never go out of print as, once again, the Eaters of the Dead. So there was more to the book in terms of a subplot, and the subplot was the science element. Every Michael Crichton book has a science element in it. He really had a very interesting career coming out of Harvard Medical School. He was this very tall man. He was six foot nine. As they say in Hollywood, there are tall people and then there are tall, tall people. And he was one of the tall, tall people. And he wrote these books beginning while he was in medical school, first under a pseudonym, and they were mildly successful. He won awards for one of his mysteries. 
And then he starts writing these techno thrillers and produces over a 30-year run or 25-year run an amazing amount of success. I mean, every one of these books is made into a movie. Every one of them is successful. Every one of them makes the bestseller list. And they have a curious alternation between promotion of science and fear of science. You know, so we get the Terminal Man, Science is Bad, followed by another book that says Science is Good, followed by another book that says Science is Bad. Interestingly, the bigger hit movies were made from the Science is Bad books, you know, Jurassic Park, for instance, which I actually think is the thinnest of his novels. I was surprised. It's not my favorite. I think Airframe, which is one of the pro-science books, is really, really much better written much thicker and more interesting. But even when his topic is not specifically science, as with Airframe, he took up the causes of media fascination with a plane wreck. In what was the one where he, uh, you would know this, where he takes up sexual harassment in the workplace? I know what you mean. It was made in the movie with Michael Douglas and Demi Moore, right? Could well be. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think I saw the movie. You know, even there, there's a science subplot, which is about virtual reality, because it takes place at a computer company, and there's data stored that they can only access by entering this virtual setting. In Eaters of the Dead, what we have is a framing device in the novel. An old Persian manuscript has been discovered. And then the editor says, I'm now going to print my translation of this manuscript. And the whole text pretends to be a rediscovered manuscript. There were actually reviewers at the time who missed it. They didn't think he had made up this text. They thought he was telling an old story. This is an old technique. You can find it in Don Quixote, this pretending that I'm merely the editor here who has discovered an old manuscript is an old novelistic technique. But of course, what every one of them would love is to have people believe that it was an old manuscript. And the manuscript is the tale that's basically in the movie. But the science element is the commentary the editor makes on this, in which he essentially argues that the Etans, the old disappearing people who are at war with the Vikings traditionally and are kind of ghosts of the forest and exist in Viking memory, but they're surprised to find that they still exist in reality. What Crichton suggests in the supposed commentary on the manuscript is that they're the last surviving Neanderthals. Yes, and that does tie in to some of the deeper thinking in the book, because you have this modern guy who says he discovered a medieval manuscript that comes from Baghdad, which was, among other things, a kind of capital of rationalism and enlightened writing in the 10th century when this is set. And this, of course, is supposed to go back into the nomadic past of the Vikings themselves. And that goes back before history or anything but this sort of mythical memory to a pre-barbaric past that scientifically is termed Neanderthals. So there's a long journey into the past of mankind and the origins of what makes us human or civilized. Right, but the claim that Crichton makes, scientific investigation that Crichton is gesturing toward, is a suggestion that in the corners of Europe, the far corners of Scandinavia, elsewhere, the Neanderthals survived until the 10th century. 
implausible, but there are odd little things, you know, archaeological things that would make it a reasonable topic for an archaeologist to take up. And Michael Crichton could not write a book that didn't have something like that in it, some scientific, you know, little moment in it. Even Eaters of the Dead, which is his least science-oriented book, contains that element. And of course, all of that gets stripped out in the movie. It's too complicated. There's no narrator who stands in our own age who could provide that commentary because the movie is set without modern narration. It's set in its own time. And so I understand why the scriptwriters and then McTiernan as director and then Crichton himself, when he stepped in to rewrite some scenes and take over the direction of them at the end of the production cycle, I understand why they dropped all of that. Because you either had to have planned the whole movie as framed around that, or you had to drop it entirely. Still, it's worth mentioning, and it's worth our dwelling on a little bit, precisely because it is a Michael Crichton story. And thus, it has to have some science element. Here, the curious tiny little bits of archaeology that suggest that in isolated places, the separate species, which was the Neanderthals, survived as enemies of mankind into the Middle Ages. Yeah, Michael Crichton had an unusual knack for finding within science all these adventures, all these strange things that should cause people to be fearful, but also to wonder to see the world as more uncanny than it is usually presented. Mostly our scientific prose has this intention to make the world not only predictable but banal. Every explanation tends to explain away most of what interests us. And Crichton realized uh, early that there's a lot in going the other way, in showing people that stuff that we take for granted looks much more complicated the more we pay attention to it. If, of course, we find the conflict interesting enough to make us pay attention to it in the first place. He had the talent for connecting the uncanny with plausibility, both in this sort of novelistic conceit that this is just a found manuscript, and, of course, in the historical events that ground it, which are true. The, the caliph in Baghdad really did send an ambassador to Vikings on the Volga in the early 10th century. So there's something uncanny within history already before you turn it into poetry. Well, uncanny is a good word if we understand that Crichton had not a drop of the supernatural in him. Yep. The usual turn of Hollywood and popular fiction, the horror genre of fiction, for instance, is to try and re-thicken the world, re-enchant it, to use Max Weber's term of the enchantment of the world and the disenchantment of modernity. The attempt to re-enchant the world by Hollywood and horror writers is typically to move into the supernatural, ghosts, demons. You know, this is how a horror movie works, right? The devil comes into Linda Blair and she vomits pea soup. We tend to move in that direction. Michael Crichton had goofiness in him. He was interested in, he ultimately rejected it, but he was interested in astral projection and ESP and other stuff. But listen to those. Astral projection, ESP, they are the pseudoscience forms of uncanniness, not the supernatural forms of uncanniness. 
Crichton is interesting in this uncanny way because he always give it a scientific gloss. And in truth, we should praise him, Titus, I think, because it's more than a gloss. If it's implausible scientifically, nonetheless, at least it's a reasonable question in every one of these books. Like the survival of the Neanderthals into the Middle Ages is improbable, but it's not goofy the way ESP is goofy. And he has a talent for finding that and then re-enchanting the world precisely in this scientific direction to say science itself is kind of uncanny. Science itself is a little bit weird. Science itself threatens us. And as remember I said, his novels alternate between pro-science and anti-science. Jurassic Park being a great anti-science book, that, you know, we use science in ways that invite the uncanny, invite the dangerous, invite failure into our world, and we, we end up with dinosaurs, you know, eating children. It's a really kind of fascinating idea. Yeah. You could also say that some of them are progressive and some conservative. Some think power is in the future, some think power is in the past. Something out of the past, like dinosaurs, the oldest things that were great could come and destroy the whole world all over again, is the fear there. And in our case as well, with this historical idea of the Vikings, there, there was once a great power. And you have to have a certain conservative sensibility that comes with heroic prose to think that stuff that was so much less powerful than the powers we have today could nevertheless have its own dignity and really be impressive, come alive for us today and show us that maybe we've lost some things for all the gains we have piled up. And it's not often that people who like Crichton consign themselves to nature when they do their poetry think that there's a lot that may have been lost, that there are all sorts of powers that don't belong to us and don't really even belong in our thoughts as civilized people. And it's the job of poetry, really, to search even through scientific possibilities to find this stuff and to make it come alive in fiction. And now that we have gotten to the movie proper, let me summarize briefly the plot of The Thirteenth Warrior. Antonio Banderas plays a Muslim nobleman, an aristocrat in the court of the Caliph in Baghdad in the 10th century. He is exiled for a certain indiscretion as an ambassador to the Vikings on the Volga. He is accompanied by an advisor, played by Omar Sharif, and he begins to learn about these strange nomadic free men, the Norsemen. But they themselves receive a summons from somewhere in Scandinavia to come join Hrothgar, a local king, in a fight against a terrible enemy of all Vikings. And they answer the summons, but not before consulting their witch, who tells them that they will need a stranger to join their 12 best warriors, which is how the Muslim from Baghdad ends up in the Baltic and then Scandinavia on a mission that's not his, but among men who become his friends and indeed sworn brothers. On the way, this soft young man begins to learn the language and the ways of the Norsemen, and then he does the deeds necessary to earn their trust and their friendship. They cannot bother to learn his strange Arabic name, so they just call him Eben for Ibn, 
the most repetitive part of his long, long aristocratic name, which proclaims him the son of, the son of, the son of, etc. Thus Antonio Banderas needs to earn his pride all over again in a new world. Arrived there, they are tested in a series of battles as they try to defend what is nothing more than a village from an enemy they barely understand. And through the heroic struggle, the Muslim nobleman and the Norseman themselves, and of course we the audience, have the chance to learn what is more terrible even than these Vikings themselves. So this is not your usual blockbuster or even a historical piece. It's a story about the origin of civilization. It shows you in its vast sweep freedom and empire, manliness and sophistication, nomads and city dwellers, chaos and civilization, superstition and faith, and how through all this nobility as the foundation of justice runs. Yeah, and the very root idea that he had here, which is let's take a rational medieval monotheist and throw him into the middle of Beowulf. You know, he could have done this with a Christian missionary, but I think he stumbled on this fact that the pashas and the sultans had actually sent ambassadors to the Volga. And he sort of gets there by thinking, well, the Rus, the modern Russians, were a Viking people. And so if you get him as far as the Volga and the Rus, then you can get him the next step to Scandinavians, and then you can slip him into the Beowulf story. It, you know, every step there becomes more implausible. Historically, we're talking about a thousand miles of extra travel for this ambassador. But still, it's just a very clever idea. And he sidesteps modern, uh, contemporary valuation and dislike of Christianity by making him a Muslim, by making your the character here, this monotheistic medieval rationalist who could have come from Paris, right? He could have come from the University of Paris. But instead, we'll make him a Muslim. Everything becomes easier that way in terms of the social valences. And yet you can oppose this very fatalistic polytheism of the Vikings to this very self-forming monotheism of the Muslim character. Yeah, that's the story. It's south versus north. It's a far more civilized, far more rational, because monotheistic way of looking at the world versus a way of looking at the world that, as you put it, is really, really fatalistic. These people believe in monsters, they believe in all sorts of strange powers that are neither friendly to human beings nor stand in any definite relation to human right. beings. And, and the, the funny thing world. about Crichton, absolutely, and the funny thing about Crichton Titus is they're right. The world is filled with surviving Neanderthals. Now, the whole Neanderthal thing is not mentioned in the movie as far as I remember. No. Uh, but it is filled with a strange people, and he keeps hearing about the fire dragon, and he doesn't believe there actually are dragons because he's a rationalist. And then he sees this trail of fire coming down the mountain, and he realizes it's the Etans carrying torches on their way to attack. And he realizes that, you know, they were speaking metaphorically. That's the fire dragon, is this Neanderthal trail of men coming down the mountain, soldiers coming down the mountain with torches to kill you. 
again and again, you sort of see that the world is a more dangerous place than he had been led to believe. Antonio Banderas' character, who's at the very least very, very pretty. Uh, And this very pretty man in the rational, effete, elegant court of Baghdad, in a world in which the most adventurous thing he can do is flirt with a woman in the Sultan's harem. And he's banished because he gets caught flirting with this beautiful woman. And the pretty boy is sent off with Omar Sharif to be the ambassador to the strange barbarian invaders on the Volga, who, of course, turn out to be the Rus, who turn out to be Vikings, who then lure him into this adventure even further north in Scandinavia, where the world turns strange and dangerous and filled with opportunities for a set of virtues that he did not know about. These are the virtues of fearlessness, the virtues of manliness, the virtue of kingliness when he meets Beowulf, the leader of these very dangerous, very fatalistic, very odd men to Antonio Banderas's character. And they all look to Beowulf unquestioningly as a leader. And it's not because he was born to his position as the Sultan was. It's because he exudes something. He exudes some quality of the hero to which these other men who are very, very physical and very, very manly respond in a way that suggests they know. They know what that is. And they gather together. This, the, the brilliant part of this casting was not Antonio Banderas and not the showcasing in the first quarter of the movie of Omar Sharif. Omar Sharif accompanies Antonio Banderas to the Rus, and then Antonio Banderas goes on by himself with the Beowulf character, and we lose Omar Sharif. Those were not the brilliant castings, Titus. The kind of brilliant and underappreciated castings, and the ones that might have damned this movie, were all these unknown Irish actors who got cast as the rest of the band of Vikings. And that was deliberate. It was deliberately thought, let's not put American actors and familiar faces in this. Let's go to Ireland, go to Iceland, go to England, find old-looking people, people who looked like the older peoples of these Vikings. And let's find actors then whom American audiences won't know. And so they'll be able to see this quality of them. And I thought it worked quite effectively, but you know, if you've got a blockbuster movie, you kind of want. You mentioned Lawrence of Arabia. David Lean not only set for us the terms of what an epic movie should look like, from Dr. Zhivago, Ryan's daughter for that matter, where you didn't even have an epic story, but somehow the filming was epic, to the greatest epic ever made, which is Lawrence of Arabia. He had a genius for casting well-known actors pretty far down into your cast. So, you know, Jose Ferrer as the Turkish officer and homosexual rapist, possibly. You get these actors whose faces you recognize as British officers. It's a really fascinating talent. And this movie went in a different direction. It thought, we're not going to cast down with familiar faces. We're going to bring in people who are going to illustrate in their faces the world that we're trying to create. 
And I think it was a very interesting cinemagraphic move, but audiences responded badly to it. Yeah, if the audience had been uh, boys and young men who play computer games, they would have loved it. They go in for the heroism and for these manly types who in their varieties all show that they're weather-beaten in a way, say, in which Humphrey Bogart or Spencer Tracy looked weather-beaten and beaten around by life, as opposed to, say, Tom Cruise or Tom Brady, who has been bitten around on playing field, but still looks incredibly handsome and young. So it's a completely different version of manliness, and they did a magnificent job of putting it in the movies. And of course, it also serves this purpose that you do recognize immediately that it's not how we live. These people don't look like we look. They don't act like we act. How strange it is for the character played by Banderas and how strange it is for us as an audience, these things mesh very, very well together. And right, and of course, your point about their weather-beaten faces, now they're relatively young, and there's st- some of them are relatively young. There's a nice age difference among the 12 whom Antonio Banderas joins to become the 13th warrior, and hence the name of the movie. There's something cleverly done in the opposition between the cragginess of their faces and the prettiness, the undeniable prettiness of Antonio Banderas. Yes, this is especially fitting for an American audience because we're civilized people, we live actually very soft lives, but the heart of freedom remains savage and there is a certain love of manliness, of violence as for the Western or citified Westerns, noirs or detective movies or indeed... John McClane saying hippie in Die Hard. There is a natural attraction for these very, very strange people whose way of life is nearly incomprehensible. And this allows McTiernan and Crichton to bring out this great contrast between what we would think is a civilized place, Baghdad and the Caliphate in the 10th century, and on the other hand, what we would think of as barbaric, the Vikings. But we go from that initial impression to a deeper thinking about this, because as you said, our young protagonist is a poet, is a courtier in Baghdad, and he soon learns that it's a deeply treacherous place. Chaos there has two forms. One of them is the arbitrary will of rulers who banish him, and the other one is the intrigue that goes around ceaselessly in these incredibly hierarchical and somewhat slavish regimes, and he's not really fond of that. He learns to like better the straightforward, earnest, and in that sense all-American Vikings. Well, and also, remember the movie ends with his praising the last surviving members of Beowulf's gang or Bulewilf, as they keep pronouncing his name, to try and sort of skew it a little bit, as having taught him that he had to go to this cold land of monsters. He says they taught him to be a man and a useful servant of God, as though those, of course, are equivalent, right? And that's what he was not in Baghdad, in the courts and in his flirtations and in his writing of sexy love poetry. It's what he became as a result of seeing the world as it actually is, stripping it down to the raw stuff. There's a moment he's lying in the mead hall of the minor king they've gone to defend where he's nervous because these attacks have been coming into this hall. And so the 13 warriors take over the defense of the hall to see what's going on. 
And he's lying there nervous, and the most talkative of the gang, the one who's kind of used as the explainer, says to him, don't be afraid, the All-Father has written your end from the beginning, which is that deep fatalism. And of course, Islam has its own forms of determinism and fatalism, philosophically and theologically. But one of the things he realizes for the first time is that an awareness of your own death, of your own mortality, when you deeply and truly intuit, Titus, that you are going to die, that I am going to die, when we really finally intuit that, it's incredibly freeing. Yes. There's a moment of release because after all, if you're going to die and you really know that, you have the opportunity to make your death meaningful. And more than that, you have an opportunity to shed fear. And yes. the one thing about all these Viking characters, the 12 Viking characters that Ibn joins, is that they are fearless. Essentially, they travel from the Volga to the Baltic, then they take a boat and they end up defending this king who sent out a message for help somewhere in Scandinavia, the Geatland, probably, if it's following the Beowulf story. And there's these moments on the boat. They made it to the Baltic States, and then they're sailing the Baltic Sea in horrifying weather. It's winter, and the waves are high. And the Viking figures are shown in those scenes as utterly fearless Yes, as they sail these terrible waves. And Antonio Banderas is shown as seasick. I mean, it's a lovely contrast. And it's during those journeys that he learns to speak the Scandinavian language that they're speaking, the kind of proto-English that they're speaking. That linguistic move, which is actually well played out in the movie, is itself scientifically implausible, but it has a supposed basis in linguistic science. In that way, it was very Crichton-like. Yeah. Uh, and this traveling up north metaphorically functions as childhood growing up into manhood, including learning to speak and uh, showing that you can speak by speaking back to people who insult you. That's a manly thing to do, not to take an insult and just swallow it. It suggests that this soft guy is beginning to toughen up, that he is alive to spiritedness, to anger, to the dark passions of the soul, without which there would be nothing but softness. And well, also, he is gaining an appreciation for them too, and the desire to earn their respect. There's a lovely moment in which it's revealed that he could not have grown up a courtier in the Grand Caliphate without being trained in some martial arts, right? because that's what it is to be a gentleman. He turns a large two-handed Viking sword into a one-handed scimitar that he knows how to use. And he demonstrates how to use it, and you know, after various swirls, ends with it against one of the Vikings' throats. And they're all impressed, right? He actually does know how to use a sword. But the Viking's response with the scimitar against his throat is, when you're done with that, can I have it for my sister? Yep. And this is a lovely moment where their fearlessness shows up, their jokiness shows up, their manliness shows up, and the Ibn character is shown to be putting to the use for which it was originally intended the martial elements of the courtier. The courtier has those martial elements because once upon a time they were necessary. And he's entered a world where once again they are necessary. 
yes, 7th century Islam was a fighting faith in a sense in which Baghdad in the 10th century was no longer. And this man indeed prefers speed and grace to strength, but there's a lot to be said for those things too. And of course, manliness means not just looking down on children as not good enough, but also in a sense looking down on women, hence the insult. Men distinguish themselves, men insist on being who they are, and that being who they are is worthwhile, and in some sense self-complete, self-standing. And all of this stuff he has to learn because it's no longer present in the supposedly civilized life of the court. There they have sophistication, luxury, arts and sciences, but they're all essentially slaves to a ruler. Here, you see people who have very little sophistication, almost none, have very few arts, mostly arts of war, and who are nomads rather than having these elaborate cities. But they have freedom and a certain sense of equality too, which of course are true. There are certain equal things that we have learned from the Vikings. I think that's right, and they've got some remember in scene two of hamlet claudius says to the young prince hamlet that his grief is unmanly fight his unmanly grief now there's some deep irony in the murderer urging the last mourner for his victim to stop mourning yeah get and over shakespeare's, it. shakespeare's always out ahead of us but if you actually look at that particular thing as, as Gertrude and Claudius rehearse, it's like they picked up a stoic handbook of arguments against grief, and they're developing them one by one in this consolatio tradition. But as he develops that line, fight his unmanly grief, it's clear that he means unmanly in all three of its senses. It is cowardly, it is childish, and it is womanly. And those are the three senses of manliness. To be unmanly would be to be one of those. In a sense, of course, when the Viking jokes, can I have it for my sister? He's joking with the increasingly manly Antonio Banderas. But he's also, of course, revealing that even the Viking women are pretty manly compared to the court of Baghdad. As witness when Antonio Banderas has a cut from one of the battles and one of the Viking women is patching him up with a poultice made from cow urine, and he winces at the pain, and she just sneers at him for wincing, right? It doesn't hurt that much, she says. These Viking women have some of the same virtues, have many of the same virtues, as witness, for instance, when the big Etten attack finally comes. The children are gathered in one of the cellars to keep them out of the battle. And the women who are going in to help keep herd on the children are given a set of knives by other women to kill the children if the Etans break through. Of course, they will do this. It's saving the children from terrible fates of murder and rape and dismemberment and probably cannibalism. But more, there's a sense, of course, the women would do this because the women have these virtues too. And also, the women are an enforcement mechanism on the virtues of manliness. They will sneer at the man who is cowardly. They will sneer and, of course, ultimately, in Crichton's evolutionary biological terms, refuse to mate with the men who are childish, the men who are womenly, and the men who are cowardly. Yes, that's all true. And, of course, these people live in a very harsh world. They are somewhat nomadic. Necessity imposes on them a hardship and a toughness that conceals many differences between men and women that would appear in a society that has a lot of luxury and comfort, where the sexes can separate into many different activities and different ways of life. Here you also see a very interesting thing. 
we say cleanliness is next to godliness, but cleanliness is also next to health, and these are sometimes different things. The pious Muslim, the monotheist, doesn't want cow piss in his wounds because it's filthy. But the woman tells him, if you clean it with clean water, you'll just get infected and maybe die. Sometimes dirty things are necessary for health. This is another lesson that the sophisticated people need to learn. And something that the simple but rough people know apparently very, very well. It takes very little sophistication, but you have to not be very particular, not very precious, not very cleanly. Again, in certain ways, he is more of a woman than a woman. He still has much to learn from the Vikings. A perfect moment for that, Titus, is when Omar Sharif and Antonio Banderas first reach the Vikings. They wake up in the morning and a bowl of water is being passed around this group of warriors who follow the Beowulf character. They're all washing their faces and wiping their teeth and spitting, even blowing their noses into the water. And then the bowl of water is handed on to the next person who does the same thing. And then it's offered to Antonio Banderas, who recoils in horror at this snotty, salivated water. But the supposed editor in the book will comment on this, that what they're doing is not being cleanly. They don't have a strong sense of cleanliness. But they do have an unconscious sense that the group is made stronger by shared germs, that we share our immunities and our antibodies in the small group in this way. The weaker members of the group will die from these diseases. But speaking in evolutionary terms, the group as a whole is made stronger. Yeah, so you see here a combination of the moral part of manliness, which refuses disgust and delicacy, and the science that we learn, because manliness puts them somehow together. Part of the teaching here is that manly people really are, in important ways, closer to nature. Maybe it's worth sacrificing that for civilization, but look how civilization might end up making you soft and in certain ways slavish. Neither of the two sides is actually civilized. At first it looks like the southern people are civilized, but then you get to see the lot that's wrong with them the more you think about it. The northern people at first seem purely barbaric, but then in two ways, it turns out that they're not all that barbaric. First of all, they do have a lot of sense among them. Some arts and some ways of life that are reasonable, that are not mere prejudices or madness. They are vulnerable to myths and ultimately to fatalism, but they're not morons. They just use metaphor more than rationalists would prefer. And so there's much more to say in favor of them than at first seems. And of course, given that Americans draw from the English and the English did have Viking rulers for a while and Viking institutions among them, there is also a way of tracing the strong part of civilization, the harsh part, directly back to these Vikings. Ultimately, the teaching of the movie is that you'd have to be able to put both together, the soft virtues and the harsh virtues. That would be civilized. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how sophisticated Baghdad is. It's not really civilized compared to these barbarians who are nomadic. And now, there are suggestions, Titus, that the Vikings, especially the older Vikings, are still living in the dream, or that there are elements of the old generations of Vikings that have carried forward. Early on in their visit to the Rus, Antonio Banderas and Omar Sharif witness a woman who is about to be burned in the long boat containing the corpse of her husband. 
and she's reciting the famous Viking death song. Right, Lo, I see my father. Lo, I see my mother and my brothers. Lo, I go unto them. This famous fragment we have of a Viking death song. And she's reciting it. And Omar Sharif says something very interesting there. It's unexplained how he would know this. But he says to Antonio Banderas, you should watch this because it will not come again. That this is the old way of the Vikings, which is already fading away. The response to the Ettons, Beowulf and his gang are surprised when they visit the king who's being attacked, when they finally reach there, and they discover he has not built his hall in the traditional way. There's no wall around it. It's not defensible in the way that Viking tradition said it should be. And his response is basically, that's old superstition. We don't have to do that anymore. And Beowulf and his warriors, who are more old-fashioned, who are closer connected to the deep stuff of the Viking tradition, their response is incredulity. How could you not do this? This is the way we have always done it. And lo and behold, there turns out to have been a reason that the Viking tradition did this, because there are the Ettons. They still exist, and they will still attack you. But I think the clearest moment of living in the dream world that the Vikings were capable of with their berserkers and the old mystical traditions of the forest comes when the message is received from the Baltic king that he needs help. It comes via a young boy who's on a longboat that lands on the Volga where the Rus are. They grounded the longboat, which is amazing military technology for the time, this boat that you could use to invade with. And the boy is standing in the bow of the boat, and he's just standing there. Antonio Banderas says, why is he doing it? And Omar Sharif says, he's being courteous. He stands for an hour or two in the bow of his boat so that everyone can see him and decide that he's not a ghost. The old courtesies of the Viking world were deeply tied to the supernatural. But Crichton's point is the supernatural myths and the symbolisms all had a grounding in reality. And they were, in their way, the rational response to the groundings of reality. And that plays out over and over again in the book and even in this beautifully filmed and slightly odd failure of a movie. Yeah, I think he's done everyone a service because his attempt to look through to rationalism in the customs of the people brings out the problem of nature. And the more you think about it, the more you can see that the North and the South complement each other and therefore also criticize each other in rational ways. But of course, there is also, as you pointed out, a past before the arrival of civilization. And in the case of the Vikings, there is this one deeply insane thing. They slaughter women as a funeral rite. Human sacrifices are not below them. They are not beyond it either. And that's tied up with what you mentioned before, their deep fatalism. And the willingness of women to murder their children should it come to that. This is what drags us to the deepest, darkest, most remote past in the movie. This other tribe... You mentioned berserkers, bear warriors. That's what these Vikings are fighting. Another tribe that's far more primitive and far more savage. And the differences are that human sacrifices are not just the sort of funeral rite for those bear warriors. They can have no society with mankind because they're cannibals. They would eat you. 
This monstrosity, of course, extends to the fact that they live in caves rather than houses. And in their caves, they live basically in tombs. They make trophies out of human bodies. Of course, you know, soldiers used to set up trophies, but in civilized places it turned into putting armors or things like that as trophies, not corpses. And you see that you can go back further than the Vikings into a land where human life is worth nothing. It's one thing to say that the Vikings are fatalistic, which of course is very true, it defined them, and their strange polytheism was part of why they were fearless and so violent. But you could go back before that. You could go back to cannibalism and to this horrifying way of life. And as our rationalist, monotheist, educated man encounters them, he first encounters them in a fight, and he eventually decides that they gotta be human, not because he killed one and therefore they're mortal, but because he saw one cower in fear. To fear for your life makes you human. I think you're on exactly the right track, Titus, but I think he sees also clearly, or the movie sees clearly, forces Antonio Banderas to see, that there is something worse than the Vikings. Yes. There's some human evil. And in a way, it's worse that they're humans and not demons. And it's so evil that the Vikings are a rational response to it. Yes. The virtues of the Vikings. I would love at some point if we can have a long conversation about the Vikings and about Macbeth and what happens in Macbeth, which Paul Cantor reads as set in this middle ground between the Vikings of the Orkney Islands to the north and the England of Edward the Confessor to the south. Midway between Christianity and paganism, the Vikings' yes. murderous paganism, is Scotland. And that runs through the mind of every character, not just the nation, but the mind of every character. You know, this strange moment in which they're not fully converted yet to the Christianity of Edward the Confessor. They're still Vikings, but they're Vikings who kind of Christianize and it wrecks them because they have the virtues of neither in their attempt to straddle this. It could have taken that direction, but what I like about Eaters of the Dead, and I think this movie actually catches, if we're willing to see the heroic quality of the characters, if we're willing to see kingliness in the Beowulf character, which the camera keeps inviting us to see, if we're willing to do that, I think we can see the deep idea that down at the root of humanity, there is murderousness and sacrifice and cannibalism and evil to which the manly virtues of the Vikings are a rational response and a rational response which puts to shame the weak and soft rationalism of the court of the caliphate. Yes, that is very much true. At the end, as you mentioned, the camera frames him as a king. In fact, he becomes a statue as he dies, poisoned, and you see this completely different form of sacrifice. Not human sacrifice, it's self-sacrifice and service. And you see that the Vikings do answer each other's tribes and have some kind of communion. This other tribe is so far into the past that it is cannibalistic and so cannot have any commerce with any other tribe. But furthermore, in being isolated, it is, the movie doesn't make any point of this, but it is implied, incestuous. Endogamy must be the rule for an isolated tribe. These are the things that make politics ultimately impossible. 
if a tribe or an extended family reproduces among themselves, they do not need foreigners and maybe cannot accept foreigners among their own. And if it is cannibalistic, then even more so, it cannot accept foreigners or have any kind of society with them. And this is, in that sense, the worst oldest part of mankind. The Vikings are already at a point where they are capable of embassies. They are raping, pillaging monsters who commit human sacrifices, but they are not just that. They are, as you well, and, out, and the already is, of course, that, on the path to civilization. Right, and the sense is, of course, that they're leaving that. They're becoming more civilized. That's why Omar Sharif says, watch this sacrifice of the widow, because you won't see it again. This is the old way. So the Vikings are already becoming civilized, but they have those virtues still. They've yes. not had washed out of them the virtues that could stand against the Etons and recognize the Etons as evil. You know, it's only 12 guys that Antonio Banderas joins and they go off to fight the monsters. And the horned character who leads the Etons in the early attacks in their raids is clearly Grendel. The witch woman who poisons the Beowulf character is clearly Grendel's mother. And the suggestion there, I think you're right, is that they're a genetic sink because this is how they live in their intermarriage and their incestuousness. And they live in caves, whereas the Vikings live out in the open. All of the symbolism is directed to say, this is the evil past to which the Vikings were an entirely rational response. Yes, and that's a very thoughtful and quite sophisticated analysis of the origins of freedom and the precursors of civilization. And all of this was done in a blockbuster. It's a remarkable education in an epic story that just asks you, if you enjoy this, pay attention to the details and think about why they're doing what they're doing. It creates this audience substitute character that encourages you to be surprised at the things that surprise him, to be shocked at the things that shock him, but also to learn to admire and even to love the things that he learns to love and to admire, and therefore in both ways to pay attention and to learn from this about our own origins, about the harsh side of freedom. It sent me thinking a lot, and one thing it reminded me of is the Protagoras of Plato. There, this sophist Protagoras, in his speech, gives a list of the arts that Prometheus brought to mankind, or the origins of mankind. And the striking thing is that most of these arts, those horrifying, incestuous, human sacrifice cannibals, already have. Housing, admittedly, is just caves, but it's still something, as we see in the movie. They have learned taming, another very important thing, of horses in their case. They've learned metallurgy to an extent, since they have iron weapons or some kind of metal. They've learned hunting as well. At least you know that they kill bears and use their skins. They even have statues of gods and divination to further arts that show how they're not all that separate from us as we might think. And there is even a hint that maybe they know medicine. Now, the Vikings only have the curative part of medicine, but these other worse people, the bear warriors, they have poisons, the dark, dangerous part of medicine. The only arts that the Northmen have, the Vikings rather than the Etins, are farming, ships, and language. If you think about the difference there, 
just like we already saw that the monstrous character of this most ancient tribe is in some sense preserved in human sacrifices and fatalism in even far more advanced peoples. You can see that it's traveling around the world and speaking and some degree of subsistence or self-sufficiency through farming that helps civilize people. This, of course, is the opinion that we all share as modern people. Commerce softens manners. You don't want to insult potential clients, among other things. Business will make some degree of friendship and society possible. The suggestion in the story is that it goes back very, very far, and that at some point there must have been a separation. Even having most of the basic arts might not be enough. It might still leave people in this terrifying wickedness that separates one group from all the others, that ultimately turns to these two anti-political vices and sins, incessant cannibalism. I think that's right. Also, I mean, at the very least, Titus, what we've discovered is that Michael Crichton in his book and the scriptwriters in the original production of this movie with John McTiernan were trying to reach into the deep stuff, the deep stuff of human civilization. I could undertake something we haven't done, which is a, a Girardian reading of this film. You know, I'm speaking next week in San Francisco about Rene Girard's thought, so it's much in my mind. But that, too, is at play here, how it is that death and violence and sacrifice influences us in the deepest parts of our soul, in the deepest cultural memories, and in the foundations of civilization. And this movie, it's not terribly sophisticated philosophically or anthropologically, but it is reaching in an intelligent way for the deep stuff. You know, if it doesn't actually get there, if it isn't entirely clear, I think still in retrospect, when we're so far past the initial critical reaction against this film and then the constant news of what a flop it was and how much money it lost, I think we can look back now and say this was not a flop the way Genghis Khan was a flop. Uh, this is not a disaster. Take another famous Hollywood disaster of a film. This was not a disaster the way Heaven's Gate was a disaster. A box office flop, yes. But there was something going on in this film and in its beautiful filming and its apparent thinness of plot that actually goes away. The thinness of plot disappears when you're willing to allow the film to try to gesture toward the deep stuff of civilization. Yeah, it has a remarkable power to bring out the fundamental things, the fundamental alternatives, and to separate them in various ways that create interesting, dramatic conflicts. It's not a lecture, it's not a treatise. You have to put all these elements together. It's not done for you. And it has, of course, another virtue. It's not just that it's not lecturing you in a way a treatise would. It doesn't lecture to you in the way art or morality do either. It invites you to admire. Perhaps that's the greatest contrast between South and North, their understanding of nobility. We can see in this case the far more willingness among the Vikings to lodge nobility firmly in men who have a certain equality among them. And that is another strange sign of civilization. The fact that they have an equality among them, as brothers in arms, we would say, that is to say that they are held together by shame, not fear. They wouldn't want to earn the disapproval or contempt of any among them. That's another sign of freedom and the possibility of the coming of civilization. 
it's not the movie that brags about any of these things. It appeals to your passions and it lets the elements of the story do the educating. It has a certain beauty of poetry about it, a simplicity of juxtaposing images and scenes that are supposed to make you think and to add up. And that's of course absolutely necessary for repeated viewings. There would be no reason to go back to the movie if you didn't sense there was more and then prove to your satisfaction that you can find intelligent things to talk about in an intelligent way as we have tried. If there's one last virtue I would like to quote in defense of the movie, and I say that it was to an extent touched by greatness, it is something that is almost impossible in our times. It is epic in scope. Epics actually don't have much of a plot. There's not a lot of plot to the Iliad or the Aeneid if you think about it. There's not a lot of plot to the Odyssey, but if you think about the episodes and their succession and the argument they make by accumulation, it becomes very important. There's a great discretion in this form of storytelling, and none of the show-off quality of modern poetry where poets insist on themselves, for example, rather than what they're talking about. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if we were going to do a deep dive into that, I would want to look at the popularity of superhero movies these days, discuss what it is about virtues and symbols and our hunger to have stories in this old sense of the story. Yes, uh, that is true. And I would want to do a deep dive into horror, the success of horror as a genre, and why it is that we are looking for something supernatural, however implausible that might be, and what that says about us. And I want to do a deep dive into Alistair McIntyre's account of virtue here, and his sense of the way the virtues exist in barbaric cultures as closely tied to a system of shame and honor. The only place I would step off of your analysis of the shame culture there is, I think the movie tries not to concentrate on shame as the enforcement mechanism for these virtues. Although it's certainly there, it's there when the woman sneers at even for wincing at pain. And of course, every time the 12 warriors test him and sort of humiliate him to live up to those standards, that is enforcement by shame. But the enforcement mechanism is also not just negative. There's a positive affirmation. uh, Yes, of course. That happens too. If your enforcement mechanism for any ethical system, what Foucault would have called the discipline of it, is entirely negative. It will be a short-lived system historically. We see this in a culture like our own, where the enforcement mechanisms on Twitter are entirely negative. What you, yes. what you do is you act out of fear of getting the negative reinforcement. Those kind of moral systems are, historically speaking, short-lived. You need a second enforcement mechanism, what Foucault would have called a second discipline, which is the learning of the system, the intuiting of it which is the positive reinforcement. You need the honor, which is paid to those who do well, and not merely the shame that is paid to those who do poorly. And, of course, Beowulf is honored by his men, by the witch that they meet, the foreteller, both of them, the one who rolls the bones and the one they go to see up in the Baltic, the Geats. You know, you see this over and over again. There is a positive form of reinforcement, And although they make fun of Ibn and shame him, it's when he stands up, he now understands their language, and he says, don't mention my mother, in essence. He says, my mother was a pure woman. That's when they begin to respect him, 
And when he shows that his martial arts, which to them seem weak, the scimitar, the small horse that he likes to ride because it's graceful and nimble, when they see that it is a good martial art, they don't keep rejecting it. The translator, the talkative, the interpreting character in the movie, for instance, pulls people out of the way as Ibn gets on his little horse and jumps the fence, jumps the gate to go rescue a child who's being pursued across the field. And there's a clever filming there, which says this group of 12 warriors has come to accept him for his strengths and not just his weaknesses. They appreciate him. And that is that positive reinforcement, that positive discipline of the moral system that he's come to join. Yeah, just like the group has a certain strength in the being that seems to be somewhat different from each of the individuals or even indeed all of them taken individually, it also is the case that they want to overcome mortality to some extent through memory. And so our Beowulf says a man might be thought wealthy if someone were to draw the story of his deeds. And of course the Norsemen did love their stories sung precisely because the song appeals to your passion, but the story remembers people. At least the deeds can be remembered. This is Hannah Arendt's analysis of immortality in ancient cultures that she takes up in a chapter in The Human Condition. And it seems to me it's one of her most brilliant analyses. But she has that moment at which she says, what is it that Achilles wants? And the answer is he wants to be immortal. And the only immortality on offer is the immortality of being the epic hero and thus have stories told about you. You and I, Titus, we have other immortalities on offer to us, specifically the immortality that's offered by God's redemption of the world. But for Achilles, the only immortality that's on offer is being the storybook hero. And Beowulf, the only immortality that he can be sure of, I mean, he's got a fatalistic sense of Valhalla, he's got a sense that there is something to which the good warrior is called, which is the ultimate lure, as opposed to negative, the ultimate positive reinforcement of the moral system is the promise that the gods themselves will make you immortal, save you for the battle at the end of time. And he's got that, but very little is made of that part in yes. the book or the movie. Yes, indeed. And so, like Achilles, one of the things he's interested in is immortality as being the hero of a story, of being remembered. Because time wears most of us away. I've actually done a lot of work over the years on trying to figure out how long people survive after their deaths. And it is, in truth, the rare person who is still alive in any kind of cultural memory 50 years after their death. The average seems to be around 25 years. And it does seem that these ancient, pre-civilized Norsemen already have realized it. And in certain ways, they're more frank and more serious about their mortality than we mostly are these days. And that some of these things really haven't changed people aren't that much more memorable or remembered now. So it's perhaps shocking at first, but then quite understandable, intelligible, and even relatable that they act the way they act. And in a certain sense that we act the way we act. A lot of the craziness and the restlessness is all about that. We too know we are mortal. In fact, in some ways, because we're less fatalistic, we're even more agonized by our mortality than they are. 
takes a lot of discipline and manliness to feel free, even though you know you're going to die. Well, and then you want to add to that that people need a horizon. They need something toward which they're heading. The effete cultures, the soft cultures, allied all of that. It's not clear where you're heading, and thus it's not clear why you're going to die, or why you should have to die, why your death isn't an outrage. We are born unto death, and the soft culture forgets that, and then begins to think that death is an outrage. Is, is something wrong with the universe? And of course, if you have nothing supernatural, then every death has to be blamed on somebody. And you have a culture that begins to devour itself. And this is the condition, I think, that we can look back to the Vikings and say, whatever their other faults, they didn't have this one. That is very much true. And I guess that is the point in looking back to these aristocratic societies. They weren't necessarily better than us, but they had virtues we need and do not have, and they're worth trying to get. And I think in this way we can set up, as you suggested, perhaps a few more conversations about superheroes now and what they say about us, where they stand to heroes as they used to be talked about in song. And, of course, the other thing you mentioned, horror, which indeed is always tied up with our mortality and our existential vulnerability in a cosmos that may be indifferent or even hostile. Yep, I think that's right. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me again. This has been a dream of mine to get a chance to defend this movie, as I have tried to do. And I'm very grateful for conversation. Let's do this again soon. All right. Stay in touch. Let me know what you want to talk about. I enjoy these conversations, so let's do more of them. Yes, indeed. All the best. All right, thanks. Thanks.